0: Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, today I want to finish up... Uh, three-week series that I started a couple of weeks ago. I missed last week, and so I'm back now. Uh, Called The Essence of the Church, Gospel, Witness, and Partnership. You know, the, the essence of our faith is that, that defining characteristic or spirit where we identify the keys to who we are and why we exist. And that's kind of been the whole impetus or emphasis that I wanted to give to this series. We talked the first week about the gospel and the message of Jesus Christ, of God's revelation of his love for us in Christ. It's the, it's the message that defines who we are, our identity, and it also defines our commission why we exist, our purpose here in this world. And then last week, uh, John led us through two ordinances to define, uh, two ordinances that define our witness, that of baptism, when we identify with Jesus Christ in water baptism to reveal and show what God has done for us spiritually inside, but then also the regular observance of the Lord's Supper. And so Jesus gave these two ordinances to the church for us to regularly remember what he has done for us in the gospel. So in a very real way, the very essence of our witness is identified in, the Lord, in baptism in the Lord's Supper. Because here we identify in his death, burial, and resurrection as our own. And here we regularly participate to remind ourselves of how it is that we've been brought near to God. Well, today I want to talk about gospel partnership, gospel partnership. You know, water baptism identifies a person who's been made new by faith in Jesus through the gospel. Gospel partnership identifies a person with God's people for his mission in the world. We talk about covenant membership here at LifePoint, and I'm going to make the argument today that baptism into faith Uh, The water baptism that identifies us with Jesus Christ should be followed by covenant membership in a local body of believers. And just as we publicly identify with Jesus as Savior and Lord, the scriptures teach that we should identify with a local body of believers as our spiritual family. And so when we're baptized into Christ, we're baptized into his people. Like we are saved individually, but we are identified corporately as a people. And so covenant membership in a local church demonstrates among the world what God has done for you and how it is that we're united in partnership with his people to take the gospel to all people. Now, before you check out on me, because you say, well, pastor, I've heard this message Many times, and I've heard you talk about the importance of covenant membership, or hey, I'm already a covenant member, there's no real need for me to listen to this. I beg you to hear me out. I promise you haven't heard this message today. Maybe some elements of it, but not the whole of it. So I want to talk about gospel partnership today, the purpose of covenant membership in the church, and I want to talk about how this is the essence of our faith it's not just an action item that we need to check off of our to-do list but being a part of a local body believers is the essence of our faith and listen to me friends I believe it's becoming more important every year that we remain on this earth and the Lord tarries from his second coming. You know we are quickly moving in this world to a disembodied experience a disembodied existence where you can be anyone without being with anybody have you have you thought about this much recently if you begin to put the dots together and see where they're lining up, think about it. We have dealt for the last number of years, even a couple of decades now, uh, about the way social media has stripped us of interpersonal skills. And this is true, right? Like we can't have a conversation anymore because we're tied to our phones. It's it stripped from us the ability to relate, And these are some very real and genuine issues that we're seeing with the up-and-coming generation is this not just an inability to relate, but an absolute anxiety even at the thought of having to. And of course, um, as Facebook continues its advance to take over reality, recently they announced... The metaverse. Here we go. The metaverse. You can create your own reality, not just about the world, but of you. You you can. Uh, I don't know exactly how to say this, so let me try it this way. You can avatar the imperfections out of your life. Right. I have no idea what all of that means because I don't even have. I like. I'm still using a picture I took for my, my profile picture. How old is that, right? That's so Karen. <laughs> you can also create the reality for how you want to interact and how you want the whole world to perceive you. I've been reading recently a horrific book that's just riddled me called Post-Christian, A Guide to Contemporary Thought and Culture. The book's good. I mean, the reality it describes and shows how we've gotten here is what's horrific. But Christian scholar Gene Veith shows the progression from humanism toward a disembodied existence in in a transhumanist world. Transhumanist world. Listen to this. This is a quote. The secularist ethical ideology that prevailed through most of the modern era was humanism the quasi-religious exaltation of humanity you don't hear much about it anymore humans are destroying nature they cause wars and they're radically limited they have bodies and will eventually die Humanism today has been replaced in cutting-edge circles of transhumanism. The goal, go beyond being merely human. This will be accomplished when human beings are merged with machines. The goal, become post-human. Again, the body is expendable, something to overcome with technology. Let that sink in for a moment. I know it sounds ridiculous that we would create our profiles in the metaverse, but even in its introduction, we've heard how it will outlast our ability because when we die, it doesn't have to. Yes, that's what we want. A world collection of everything that was wrong staying here long after They're gone, right? I mean, uh, yes, let's please. It's like taking the trash heap and just saying, let's make sure it never goes away. Okay, y'all going to have to wake up. It sounds ridiculous in one sense, but it's not far-fetched. Consider with me, if you will, and and again, I'm not making commentary. I'm just talking about observation that is striking to me as I study and conceive where we are moving as a culture in a world. But we now live in a world where this generation eschews permanency. Think about this for a moment. Opting rather to remain in a state of perpetual Movement. It's almost like we've moved into the video game and we're trying to capture as many gold coins as possible. You know, bling, 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 We stay in perpetual motion to continue the experience and the rush that it gives we, we are not seeing a generation that anymore wants to invest in a home and, and put down roots, but rather, you know, we, we joked about it at one time, but they want to live in the van. And not just down by the river, but wherever the van will take them. Right? I, I mean, that, that's what they want. And, and I'm not just talking about as, as a vacation escape. I'm talking about as the way they live, moving from one experiential rush to the next. It's taking hold of a generation who wants to live with immediacy in lieu of permanency, who thrives on life experiences in the rush instead of any actual investment. And listen, any actual revenue that they might have because now they can take their job on the road. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, again, I'm not making commentary, this is observation any revenue that they actually have is becoming more likely to be invested in virtual real estate in the metaverse for a virtual experience immersion over a real roof over their heads. You know, they had a concert in the metaverse not too long ago. Are you ready? Over 50 million people attended a virtual concert. I know, it's new, it's the rage, it's the hype, and yes, this too shall pass, but it's gonna be a lot of people stuck in it before it does pass. You can buy real estate in the metaverse now. The problem is, it's just estate, it's not real. You see what I'm saying? People are spending millions of dollars for prime real estate in the metaverse. I don't even know where that is. Again, Karen. That's what I'm called. Friends, I don't want to heap the problems up too high. Because I don't have immediate solutions for those But what I propose today is an absolute radical diversion from this billowing transhuman tsunami that is building. Embody this life to the fullest to demonstrate the goodness and the grace and the redeeming power of God in this world where we can have eternal hope. You say, how do we do that? Let me just throw out a couple of things. Get a job, get married, buy a house, plant a tree, mow the grass, make babies, a whole gaggle of them. And do all of this and, and raise those babies to love Jesus and to walk humbly in obedience to him and the world. And write in the middle of that embodiment of this fleshly world that yes, it is and shall too pass away with all of its brokenness. Partner with other Christians to reveal the greatest glory of God's revelation, redemption through Jesus Christ. Christians live in such a way to testify to the world that we don't have to escape the world to have hope in the world. I never thought that would be the radical nature of the message. God's creation is good. He said it when he made it. And it's broken, but he's not. And that's the testimony of Christians in the world today. Christians have a hope in this world that speaks beyond this world. It's not virtual, it's eternal. It's reality defining for us. We have a hope in this world that's beyond this world that's not about escaping this world it's about overcoming it. That's what the Christian message of the gospel is all about. It's, It's not about avoiding death it's about conquering it. It's not about becoming transhuman but a new creation by believing in the one who is God and Man, Jesus Christ. What I want you to walk away with today is this, that Christians embody life together through gospel partnership to bear a faithful witness and to serve God's kingdom mission as the church. You see, Christians receive the goodness of of our creator in this world knowing it's not our ultimate hope but understanding it is our gift and we receive the things that are from God's hand we reject the perversions that sin has broken in this world and we redeem the things that we are able but instead of checking out let's press in Press in to see God do more than he's already done because we know until he comes again, that's what he wants to do. You know, in our study in the fall through Philippians, we began in chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, and Paul recounts his partnership with the Philippian church. And even as he begins to recount that partnership, you can sense the love from deep within his bones just begin to well up for those people. And he said, you know, I was, I was with you and I didn't even know you when I got to Philippi. I was so new to Philippi, I had to go down to the river and ended up meeting Lydia who became a believer and then the Philippian jailer a few weeks later and, and then the Lord just began to do something that was so real that he brought unknown strangers to become who has been for me partners now. Brothers and sisters in Christ through the gospel. And Paul's remembrance is a testimony to how it is that the gospel embodies a people as the church, embodies us. And so I want to look today at the essence of the church when we are made visible by four embodiments of gospel partnership, four embodiments of gospel partnership that for us define the purpose of covenant membership. The first embodiment is what you're sitting in the middle of, friends. We gather regularly under the lordship of Jesus Christ to display and build unity in his name. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. And in verse 19 through 22, Paul begins to talk about what it is that God is doing by the gospel to build his church. And he's talking specifically here about Jews and Gentiles. So understand that. But that application transcends so that any Gentile is anyone who is not a Jew, which that puts us in the Gentile camp. And it comes to understand that what God is doing here, he is transcending from only here to be applied to what he is doing here and now. Among us, Verse 19, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Who is that talking about? He's talking about all Christians from all times, that we become members of the household of God. Verse 20, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, their teaching and the revelation of God through their teaching and their ministries. And Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. He holds it all together. He holds it all together. Because it is in Christ where the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit friends what we do when we gather regularly as a local body of believers is not unimportant and it's not inconsiderable When a person comes into God's kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ, they should join with the local church to embody the reality of God's kingdom in this world. You see, when we gather regularly, we display our oneness that forms our corporate witness in the world. From a biblical understanding, the principal expression of the local church identified is their regular gathering. You say, well, we've, we've had a lot of challenges to that in the last couple of years. Do you have to go to church to be a Christian? Thank you. <laughs> you don't. But I can't imagine being a Christian, not wanting to go to church. I will argue this, while I'm the determinant of no man's eternal state, I don't think you can be a Christian and not show up in the church. You say, well, what about online church? You might have church online, but you don't have online church. But let, let me make the argument here. You see, throughout history, the church has been challenged with ways to get to people that were their own, that couldn't be among them. Uh, There have been different times. Shut-ins, I can remember growing up, we always kept a running list of shut-ins. People who were aged or were permanently ill in some way that could not physically attend church And the church had an outreach, would go to them and do these kinds of acts of ministry of the body to them. There were a couple of things that were most notable in that. The first people that would tell you it's a ministry, but it's not the ideal expression of church, were the shut-ins who couldn't come. They'd be the first to tell you, thank you so much for coming. I wish I could be there. But we live in a broken world. And so there are ways... To build ministry for that. But let me tell you the problem with online church. No man creates his own reality. God is reality. And the problem with online church is this. You remain unknown. And Galatians 4.9 says that the essence of salvation is to know and be known. By God. And when none of God's people know you and you are not known by them. Now granted, some would argue you can sit in church every week and not be known. That's exactly right. We'll get there in a moment. You see, I'm thankful that we can have an online presence. Because in this world today, people research us extensively by what we're doing online before they ever dare to come on campus here many of you did that I'm totally fine with that and I'm not saying there's no valid reason to have an online presence, quite the opposite, I think it's becoming more and more important but to let that be the principal expression of the church is not a biblical concept and it's not even a new one that we're dealing with today it's been addressed through the centuries the church is identified by the one under whose name they've been gathered last week when we looked at the two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper we saw that baptism is that public act that represents our spiritual identification with Jesus in his death his burial and his resurrection and so when a person identifies with Jesus through baptism the scriptures Teach that they should identify with the local church to live as one with God's people. There's no concept in the Bible where you wouldn't. That's why we require baptism for covenant membership in our church. Because being a part of the church, participating, being around is possible. But being a true member of the church without being a Christian first is not possible scripturally. And what God is doing is he's building us into one. Every person who is baptized should unite with the local church to embody the gospel under the lordship of Jesus among people in the world. You say, well, the church has a lot of problems. Yes, and if you join, you'll be the next one. It starts with me and it, it starts at our elder table. It goes to our uh, deacon table, our community group leaders, our servant team leaders. Yes, yes. There's not a perfect person in the building except the one we worship. That's it. And the world is pressing us toward a transhuman by removal from any in-person existence. And, And I am very saddened and burdened to say so many churches are happy to comply I don't know how a man who is called to preach the gospel to a congregation of people can stand to preach to the lens of a video camera. It ain't the same. But I know a lot of people are happy to preach to the lens of a video camera because they're not called to bother with the troubles of the church. And if they won't bother to pastor... They shouldn't be blessed to preach. Be radical. Gather regularly with the church as the church. The unity of the body in our regular gathering in Jesus' name, it is the strength of our witness, friends. It is the strength of our witness. The second embodiment of gospel partnership is to hold a faithful gospel doctrine in all preaching and teaching. To hold a faithful gospel doctrine in preaching and teaching. From the beginning of church, the preaching and the teaching of the gospel doctrine was primary for the church. If I ask anyone today, almost anyone that has any Connection to the church could tell you that they have at least heard, if not believed, at some point, to some extent, that doctrine divides, it's damaging for the church. And friends, you can say it that way if you must, but you cannot get away from the clear biblical teaching that doctrine doesn't just divide, it distinguishes. And the problem today that we have is we don't know who the church is and who it's not. Because doctrine has been so belittled. If you go to the very first launch of the church, Acts chapter 2, after a very brief time when we see God by his Holy Spirit forming what we know as the gathering of the body, the local church, it says this, they devoted themselves first of all to the apostles' teaching. Do you know what the apostles' teaching is? It's what we call the scriptures today. Because as Ephesians 2, as Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, where was the church founded but on the prophets and the apostles? The prophets who were proclaiming, foretelling of Christ he was coming, the apostles who were declaring he had come and then applying his coming to the aspects of the prophecy to show how God had been preparing for this time from all beginning. That's what the apostles' teaching was all about. It was about the doctrines. It's about the things that the gospel of Jesus Christ is applied to in everyday life so that we can know how to live with God. When the church holds to a faithful gospel doctrine, its people embody that doctrine. Paul exhorts the Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. He's not telling them to try harder. He's saying because of Jesus Christ, because of what Christ has done, there is a way for us to live by faith, to walk in the Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't just lead us and say it's okay to whatever we want to do, but the Spirit leads us by illuminating the revelation of God in the Bible to us and then strengthening our heart to put away any substitute or false idolatry that we may have and repent that we might walk in obedience by that faith. You see, as you sit under and submit to the authority of God's word through its regular preaching and teaching, your life becomes shaped by it. Sometimes we think about that just being adherence and outward conformity, but actually that's only the very end of the fruit of what's transpiring. What the gospel does is it appeals to us at the deepest level of our affections and our adorations, the things that we love and the things that we hold most dearest to us in life. And as we begin to see the things that we have loved because we've given them priority over Christ, are the very things that are damaging us, deceiving us, and destroying our lives. We repent and we set those things aside and we put Christ as our first love by the doctrine that we come to know him through, whatever area or way of life that it is addressing. You see, Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus. Why? To guard them against anyone teaching a false doctrine. Why? Because false doctrine leads to practicing false Christianity. Humanity. That's why we've got a whole world that is embracing myths and genealogies and ideologies of this world that are not only deceiving them but damning them to an eternity in hell of which they've most of them been convinced doesn't exist. How did that start? How in the, oh, how did we get here? You entertained it. And what you entertained, you embraced. And what you began to embrace, you embodied. It's inhabited you. He tells Timothy, teach and urge these things so that no one will be captured by false doctrine. And if anyone teaches a doctrine that's contrary, here's a teaching we need from 1 Timothy. Warn people to have nothing to do with them. Be careful what podcast you entertain. Be careful how many videos you're willing to consume. He tells Timothy, church leaders must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Is the Bible sufficient? Listen, there are so many principles that are thrown at leaders today in the church and so many best practices. It is so easy not to crack the spine on this right here because everybody else has got the answer. Let's just put it into play. The problem is this. It doesn't answer the problems that's creating those practices. So you must hold firm to the word as taught so that we may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it so that we can teach what accords with sound doctrine. You see, friends, faithful gospel doctrine, faithful gospel doctrine is the way we apply the whole counsel of God's word to the whole of our lives. That's why we say that we're not just New Testament Christians. Are you New Testament Christians? Yes, I'm Old Testament Christian too. If you need me to go Old Testament on you, let me know. I'll show you what it felt like before Christ came. That's the easiest thing to do. The other easiest thing to do is go, well, the Old Testament is obsolete. They don't understand today. And when we say that, what we argue is that we don't understand eternity. Because that too is truth divinely revealed from the one who is eternal for our well-being. And by the revelation of Jesus Christ, faithful gospel doctrine brings him as our eternal hope into being. You see, faithful gospel doctrine forms the faithful witness of our message that fuels our mission by forming the lives of the people in Christ's likeness as we gather regularly and sit under its teaching in order to have our life shaped by it. Hold to a faithful gospel doctrine in all preaching and teaching. The third embodiment, I draw from Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to, I would invite you to turn there. Ephesians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians 12, 7. I'll read 1 Corinthians twelve seven because it's shorter and then I'll move to Ephesians 4. You say, well, why am I jumping around in the Bible today? Because what I'm building is a system, a system of theology and understanding of the counsel of scriptural teaching for us to refer to. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 says this, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, what is manifestation of the Spirit there? But an outplaying of the Spirit. In other words, when that which is unseen becomes seen and visible. When that which is intangible becomes tangible, observable, experiential. That's what he's speaking of there, and that manifestation has been given to each one for what? For them? No, for the common good. The common good of who? The world? Well, indirectly, maybe, but explicitly, Paul's writing to a local body of believers. The one you identify with is the one that God has gifted you for and. Put you in, in order for you to manifest his work and his presence in your life for their good. The people sitting in the room with you right now. And the people who will sit in the room next. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says it again to the church at Ephesus. He says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And so here's the third embodiment that I give to you today. All serve and all speak for the growth and the maturity of each one. I know it's not earth shattering. You've heard me say this so many times, you may be tired of hearing it. When the church embodies the gospel, We exist in serving for each other. You are not here for me any more than I am here for you. We are here for one another. We're not anyone's savior, but under the savior's lordship, we serve to see each person become more like Jesus. More like Jesus. You see, only through serving, it's not just confined to what we do, but it's in what we say and it's in how we speak too. You ever think about that? A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold, the proverb says. It's invaluable for our life. Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Does that mean we go around quoting hymns and psalms to each other? Not inherently, probably that's not the best first practice, but it is included in that. Why? Because psalms and hymns and spiritual songs are the way that we categorize and capture the nuggets of truth that we draw out of the text. How many times do we use songs to teach children the truths of God's word? Why? Because you sing them. You sing them. And we teach ourselves in that same way by the songs we sing. That's why they're important. Those phrases that, that strike us in moments of, of overwhelming anxiety or heavy burdens, and those, those choruses that we remember because they resonate within us. We're learning theology, we're learning doctrine, and we are applying it and holding to it in our life because in it is Christ. For us. You see, it's not about hyper-spiritual culture built from talking weird and trying to be different, but rather it's about a people who serve one another by the way they speak to one another. We reject empty platitudes. We reject vain cliches. Why? Because that's all the world has to offer. It's not all that we have to offer one another. We have a strength that is beyond us but is fully applicable for here among us. We build one another up by reminding each other, by instructing one another, by admonishing and correcting and encouraging one another with words of faithful gospel doctrine to which we build our lives by. And friends, you may be the one today and it may be a few more weeks before you walk in this way. But inevitably, every person walks in the doors of the church with some kind of subconscious deep longing at some point that says, man, I hope I get acknowledged today. If people really knew what was going on with me, what would they say? And because of the Spirit that makes us one, Things offered in passing can speak to the deepest issues of life. May we be a people who trust each other in such a way that we need not risk it to be said in passing but we would expose it in faith because we know there are people God's brought today to encourage us to speak to us, to build us up. Every personal encounter among the church, friends, every personal encounter among the church is divinely ordained to be one of gospel embodiment for God's people to grow and to mature, either in serving one another or in speaking to one another. The fourth embodiment is this, to partner to send the gospel to our neighbors and the nations. Much like uh, Sarah that came up here today, much like other partners that we have, partnering to send the gospel to our neighbors and the nations does not begin with someone saying, I believe God has called me. It begins in the local gathering out of which God calls when Jesus gave the great commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, he provided our orders until he, his return. Making disciples is our mission. And what we do in our going to make disciples, and go and make disciples, he says, that's consumed as much in our regular schedule as it is in our special work. Let me tell you, we, we so often celebrate the fruit Of gospel partnership and i'm all about that when we're able to send a young couple who gives up their professional careers to move to the other side of the world to take on a completely different culture and a completely different kind of work because god's called them to it we go whoa how did that happen i'll tell you how it happened every week gathering in the name of jesus Every week showing up and talking about what Jesus is doing in my heart and in my life to redeem me from my sin and give me hope in the midst of a world that has run out of hope say, how do people respond to calls like that? They see the work of God and they know the work of God and God stirs in their heart and sometimes God stirs in the church and just like in Acts chapter 13, they were praying in the church said, hey, we need to send somebody to the other side of the world and somebody else said, yeah, let's send Paul and Barnabas. What? Somebody stands up on one side and says, let's send those two. The funny thing about it is they were like, yeah, I think that's what we're supposed to do. That's how God calls out. You see, it's about the root. That's what covenant membership is about. It's about the root of God's mission. It's about where he's growing the gospel among a people so that when the fruit comes, it's because the branches have grown high and strong from deep roots. It's not about just your weekly schedule. It's about God's willingness and readiness and ability to show up. And the best way to make disciples of all nations is to make sure that we're careful to know who it is that's being made among us and to make sure that disciples are being made from within us. The gospel calls us out of a false individualistic Christianity to partner with the local church to see the gospel advance. And that's what gospel partnership is all about. Covenant membership in the church embodies God's love in Jesus Christ to see that love go to all the nations in the world. You know, covenant membership today is one of the most downplayed, dismissed, and derided doctrines of the church. Most don't even give any time or attention to it because it offends people, it puts people off. They just don't want to be inconvenienced with it. Gosh, didn't Paul just address that with Timothy? And it's no wonder when you see the progression of the world towards a disembodied transhumanity that we're looking at a disembodied trans church. Know no one. Be known by no one. We've substituted it for entertaining crowds. We've validated them by messages that are cloaked with Christian lingo. We're trying to show people how it is that God can give you everything that the world has promised to you. Listen, friends, there's no doubt Jesus gathered the crowds, but he never confused the crowds for the church. Crowds are easy to gather. Congregations demand warfare training to build. Last week, I read of two large churches, one which was qualified as the fastest-growing church in history. Wow. That'll make a pastor feel good. And both of those pastors made the headlines for personal sin, moral failure. One resigned for an extramarital affair to which he confessed. But when they brought, this is what struck me in the article, when they brought in the accountability board, they were all pastors from outside the local congregation in other churches. My first thought was this, that's not a church then. If there is no authority structure within the congregation, that is not a church. I don't care how many people show up. And I don't care what all the headlines have read about it. The second pastor was taking a one-month sabbatical to refresh and return because 12 staff members had resigned recently, accusing him of sexual immorality with multiple people in the church. He and his wife had filed for divorce about six months prior to this. And people in the church had grown frustrated because there was no leadership structure in the church to hold him accountable and remove him. That's not a church. That's not a church. I don't care how good it feels. Neither of them are biblical. And neither of them are churches, according to the Bible. You want to know what covenant membership is? We provided our covenant for you here it tells you why we do covenant membership. It tells you what you can expect from leaderships here. And it tells you what you are expected of as a covenant member. That's all it is. And every one of them goes directly back to the biblical teaching. I commend that to you and I ask you to read it and consider it. And some of you would ask, of all we're going through in the world today, is covenant membership in the church really worth spending any amount of time talking about? I hope I've answered that question. I think it's becoming more important than ever before. And I'm going to close with this. Considering what we've talked about today, the embodiment of the gospel, LifePoint, I want to ask you to answer three questions every week when you come on this campus. Three three questions. Number one, who am I praying for more Jesus, for salvation, for growth, and for obedience? Who am I praying for? Serve the church by praying first. Number two, who did I meet today that is, not, uh, that is new to LifePoint? And how can I help connect them with LifePoint? And number three, who did I speak to today to encourage and build up? Don't walk out the door without an in- intentional word to put the gospel and the encouragement that Jesus brings into the heart and the life of someone around you. Christians embody life together through gospel partnership. To bear a faithful witness and serve God's kingdom mission as the church. Let's pray.